is the fast of the fourth month. We uh, always look forward to those announcements of when we can't eat. <laughs> uh, the fast of the fourth month uh, commemorated the fall of Jerusalem. The fast of the tenth month, the tenth day of the tenth month, which usually falls uh, toward the early part of January, <coughs> was when Jerusalem began to be besieged by Nebuchadnezzar's armies. And it took about six months of siege, uh, whereas they were locked in the city, couldn't get out because they were surrounded by the Babylonian army. And they lived for about six months before Nebuchadnezzar was able to overrun the city and, and uh, take the people captive. <clears throat> so it was a terrible six months they went through, and then a terrible 70 years captivity afterward. So the day that it was taken, it was commemorated uh, since then by a fast. And it's not just the Jews. It's mentioned uh, twice in the book of Zechariah and shown there in terms of prophecy that we should be keeping these fasts. The reason being that Zechariah is a book about the end time and the church would be besieged and has been and then has been overrun and taken and gone into spiritual captivity for the most part. Our physical nation is about to be overrun and be taken into captivity uh, just like the church was and pretty much utterly destroyed. And we see the signs of that uh, becoming very, very clear that it is not far away that that will occur. So, uh, I mean, many things in the last week. Uh, the British have now captured an Iranian ship full of oil and the Iranians are trying to figure out what they're going to do about it. So this thing is escalating. There was a 7.1 earthquake in Southern California. Uh, I guess it was early this morning or late last night. Uh, not near a population center, but still shook things badly enough in L.A. that they canceled some baseball games and various things. So uh, this is increasing. Another one off of Vancouver Island was 6.4 two days ago, I guess. Uh, so earthquakes are increasing, volcanoes are increasing. Everything indicates that we are very, very near uh, the trouble on Jacob. Uh, not going to have much of a crop this year. Prices of food are going to go way up. And other places in the world are suffering the same problem. They just had a record heat wave in Anchorage. Uh, never been 90 degrees there in history, but it was yesterday. Uh, so things are topsy-turvy everywhere and getting worse by the day. So we observed the fast of the fourth month as a reminder that the church has been destroyed and that we need God's deliverance. And also, we just, I guess, some celebrated Independence Day on July 4th, and our independence is almost gone. We are pretty much now a nation of slaves without much freedom, and that freedom is being quickly throttled so that there will be none. And we are being besieged by people who want this country destroyed. So there's a lot there, a reason to cry out to God that Jerusalem has been destroyed spiritually and needs reconstructed and that the nation is about to go under and then we'll need Christ uh, restructuring during the millennium. So this, is, this coming Thursday is a very, very important day for us to consider and to pray to God for deliverance of the church and ultimately the deliverance of physical Israel which is about to go into captivity uh, the siege is already upon us uh, by the United Nations by the Democratic Party by Russian and Chinese troops already on the ground here and troops from over 50 nations and people from over 50 nations coming across our southern border daily so we certainly are under siege, and our way of life is under siege. So it's a time to cry out to God 
knowing that we have a way to be delivered not only spiritually from the fall of the church, but we have a way to be delivered physically in Zion. So, uh, pray. (laughs) Fast and pray that we be accounted worthy to be a part of what he is about to do. That's what Thursday is about, fast of the fourth month. Now let's get back into 2 Corinthians. We came down to chapter 12, and God willing, I plan on finishing this book today. Uh, Paul has been going through the last two or three chapters here quite a bit about the serious problems that were occurring uh, in the Corinthian church, not only the specific problems, but uh, in great detail the problem of disrespect for the ministry that God had made and the raising up of some who decided they should be teachers and uh, how that is witchcraft and demonism and some of them appeared to be righteous transformed into angels of light and Satan and his demons can be transformed that way so that they appear to be good and appear to be righteous And yet, Satan is behind what they're doing, because Satan is always behind presumption and witchcraft, which is what setting yourself up as a teacher or a leader is. Unless God does it, you don't count as a teacher or a leader, and people need to understand that. Uh, Paul has been defending himself, especially chapter 11 here that we went through, and chapter 10, And he continues that in chapter 12, indicating that this was a truly serious problem there in the Corinthian church. I don't know how many had maybe quit the church, or how many were still there, but very, very divided, with many who had set themselves up and gotten a following after themselves. So it was total division and confusion. And that is not a pleasant circumstance to be in. For one thing, and it isn't certainly isn't the circumstance God wants us to be in. So let's pick it up. He at the end of chapter eleven, he said that God had delivered him. Uh, some people had let him down in a basket, down the wall, so that he could escape when they were there to kill him. So God had preserved him through all of this, and now he's writing a very strong letter to these Corinthians. He said, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. He says, I don't want to uh, tell you certain things, uh, but it looks like I'm going to have to. And he says that a little later on, that he absolutely had to go ahead and show uh, who he was because they didn't believe it. So he said, Normally it isn't expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. And he says, I will come to visions and revelations of the eternal. So he said, you haven't accepted the fact that the other apostles accept me. You haven't accepted that I was ordained of Christ and was taught by him three years in the wilderness and sent here to bring you the truth, to raise up the church, and yet now... You're looking to these other people that you think know more than I do. And then he goes on to explain, maybe I don't appear because of his afflictions that he had, maybe with his eyes and perhaps some kind of a speech impediment. Uh, You've criticized that. Uh, He said he defended himself and says, I may be weak in appearance that way, but I have the knowledge of God. So some of you think you're better looking and talk better. So you ought to be the leaders instead of me. So he was fighting this attitude in every way he could. And now he says, I don't want to have to do it, but I guess I'm going to have to go to visions and revelations that God has given me. He says, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knows it, such an one caught up to the third heaven. Now, he introduces this as visions and revelations. So, I think in saying that, uh, 
he's letting us know he did not go to the third heaven individually and personally. In fact, the book of Acts tells us that no man has ascended except he which came down. But what he is saying is, I was not sure what my state was. I was in the presence of God in this vision and given revelation from God. So he said, it was hard to tell whether I was still in the body or out of the body uh, because the presence of God appeared to me. Now that was uh, similar to what happened in the transfiguration where uh, Christ took the disciples and they suddenly had were in this vision where they were apparently transformed. Transformed means made spirit. And in the vision, they saw Moses and Elijah. And they says, well, they understood the millennium. They knew Moses and Elijah would appear at the first resurrection. So, in this vision they were having, when they saw Moses and Elijah, they thought it must be Feast of Tabernacles time in the millennium beginning. So, they says, can we build some booths for you and Moses and Elijah? So, they did not know and seeing this vision, they were projected into the future, and to them it felt real. It was so real that it got their, their entire attention. And I think that's what Paul is telling us here. I had visions and revelations, and it was so powerful, I, I didn't know kind of who I was or where I was. It was so dramatic and so powerful to me. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows. So he says, it felt like I was in the third heaven. It seemed like it. The revelations and so on that were given to me in this vision uh, that came to him was of the Father and the Son and the elders and the heavenly angels at the throne of God. Was the picture that he got. And he... He, in one way, loathes himself for having to talk about that. And he says, I know such a man. Well, he's obviously talking about himself because uh, he said he couldn't tell whether he was in the body or out of the body. He was just in the presence of God. So he couldn't have been talking about somebody else. It was his feelings. It was what came to him. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Uh, lawful is not a good translation there. It is not possible for a man to utter. In other words, it was so dramatic, so powerful, so overwhelming that it's not even possible to describe what I saw. So God had given him some pretty powerful visions and revelations. He says, Of such an one will I glory. Yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. So he said, I'm telling you about this, and I'll tell you that it was a glorifying and a glorious thing, but I'm not glorying in myself, I'm glorying in what God showed. That was what was important. It wasn't that Paul was important. It was that the message he got in the vision was important. So he says, I'll glory in that. Of myself, uh, I'll not glory except for my infirmities. And he's already talked about his shipwreck and his beatings and his snake bite and all the things that he had gone through, imprisonment uh, and verbal abuse and all kinds of things that Paul had suffered. He says, if I'm going to glory in anything, it will be that God has put me through those things and brought me through them. So he says, that's humbling, and of that, I don't mind speaking of what I've had to go through in order to do the ministry of Christ. But he compared himself to these other guys who thought themselves to be teachers and they hadn't gone through anything like Paul had gone through, okay, on a physical level. And they certainly had not gone through anything 
like these visions that Paul had seen, nor had they been taught by Christ himself in the desert as he relates in another place. But he's trying to convince these Corinthians for their own good, not for his glory, but for their own good that he indeed was an apostle of Christ and that they did not have the credentials that he had. Now, I could bring that down to here. You already know the story of how I came to understand the things that I do about the church and about physical Israel as well. And without God having revealed those things in visions and dreams, truly, I would never have understood. I would have not come up with it myself. It wasn't something I did. When I was there in Beaverdam, I've told you before, Arizona doing a subdivision. When the Sabbath came, there was no one around. So, I, yeah, sometimes I went clear to Anaheim for services, but sometimes I stayed home. And several times went up to Zion, because it was a beautiful place. But I had no understanding at all of the physical importance of the place. I couldn't figure it out, or didn't figure it out. I wasn't smart enough or tuned enough to the Bible to be able to figure that out. So it had to come in the form of a vision that showed me which areas on earth are the important areas and open up the understanding of the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament along with them. Now, I could say the same thing here. How did any of these people, you included, who are here, or who have been here, how did they come to know the things that you and I understand today. Did God reveal it to any one of them in visions and dreams? No. Did they come up with it from their Bible study? No. Where did they learn of it? There's only one source. That was my speaking and preaching. It's the only place they came. And it has come, as far as I know, to no one else anywhere. The importance of this area and this place. So these who now have accused me of all kinds of things and have decided that they should be teachers and leaders and preachers and take over the land learned everything they know about this area from me. They didn't get it anywhere else. That's Paul, what Paul is trying to tell these Corinthians. The only place you could have gotten it was from me, Paul says. And now you've decided that you know more than I do. Come on. It's just not so. And they had falsely accused him. I can tell you right here before God, 98.3% of whatever I've been accused of, I never did. I didn't murder my wife. I didn't steal any cars. Wasn't committing adultery. Wasn't uh, lying and putting two, three million dollars back somewhere. I don't know where in the world they think I got that. Certainly wasn't from hundred dollar leases. And on and on. Or the ties from mostly senior citizens on Social Security and others not working on very high wages and there not being that many in the first place. I mean, they've concocted all this garbage that has no basis in fact. But they've decided that they should be in charge. That they want to get rid of me and get rid of you and take over this place. Some don't want to get rid of you, but others do. So we're all kind of in this together. Now, do I need to rehearse this to you? Maybe some of them will hear it. Maybe it'll do some good. I don't know. I do know they need to repent of... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Presumption for setting themselves up to be the ones that should lead. Somebody said one of them had... Uh, all he was trying to do was protect what God had done. Well, how was he going to protect it? A rent strike, which cost over $40,000, and starting a corporation 
that was to manage the church because God hadn't sent enough management here. He thought he should be doing it. And yet they still consider him having Christian behavior. No, that was presumption and witchcraft. Pure and simple. And so were those who followed along. Now, if they repent in time, God can forgive, and I certainly will. But if they don't, the scripture is very plain. They're going into the tribulation, and every last one of them, man, woman, and child, is going to die there. Hopefully repenting first, if they go that far. Now, isn't that pretty well what Paul is saying to these people? He's going to tell them here in a little bit where they stand. But he's trying to show what God had done, and none of them had a leg to stand on. There are some of them here who have said that they, it is their job, since they have become the church of Ephesus, that they, it's their job to get rid of false apostles, meaning me. Now, I've never claimed to be an apostle, so thank you for recognizing what a high office, <laughs> I say sarcastically. But uh, they think they've got to get rid of me in order for righteousness to reign here. And yet they're lying and stealing and trying to take land that they have no right to and never did have based on a 49-year lease, which everybody had. But they lie and file papers, some of them, with the county government saying that they had a lease to buy, which they never did have and cannot produce. It was a bald-faced, outright lie. That's the kind of stuff we're up against here because Satan is, has riddled them with his approach and his way. And they're not showing the fruits of Christianity. Wild imaginations and false accusations and lying and trying to steal land is not a godly procedure. If you think God has led you to great understanding beyond what is here, why are you standing here trying to destroy what is here? Why aren't you out building something on your own? If God has given you so much, why aren't you out there doing something positive instead of trying to tear down what already is? Now, there are some who are honorable who will leave whatever group they're in in the church today, and they'll go on out and try to start their own. Well, they're probably being presumptuous in most every case, uh, but at least they're not trying to tear down somebody else's foundation. They're trying to build their own. That's at least one step above these dissidents and liars and thieves that we're dealing with. They have no honor whatsoever. And yet they file lawsuits on wind, on nothing that can be proved or substantiated in any way. Well, God has already said what will happen. Now, all I've done is tell you what Paul was telling them. Now, most of them that this applies to here have already left, so maybe I'm wasting my breath. But I hope somehow, some way, some of them at least will repent. And remember where they got what they know. Either that or why do they stick around and fight and do lawsuits when they could go somewhere else and do their thing and not have be paying lawyers and not be frustrated and uh, all that they're doing filled with hate and trying to get rid of what God has put here. That is totally dishonorable. So he says, I'm not going to glory about what God has done. I'll tell you about it. So maybe it'll strike a chord somewhere. But I'll glory in my infirmities and what God has put me through uh, in order to teach me, to show me, to help me, and humble me, and so on. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. I mean, he says, within any human being, within any human being, is the human desire to puff oneself up, to brag, to glory, whatever. But he says, I'm not going to go there. That's foolish. Why should I be a fool about it? For I will say the truth. That I will do. 
I'm not going to brag. I'm just telling you what happened for what it's worth to you. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he sees me to be, or that he hears of me. He says, I don't want people to put me on a pedestal or think more highly of me than they should. Uh, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. You know, you have people who have a dream and suddenly it becomes so very, very important to them. Uh, and there, so many of them have such important jobs, they think. <coughs> so he says, God has caused me to suffer things that help humble me so that I don't uh, lift myself up. So he says, lest I should be exalted above measure through the dreams, the revelations, the visions, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. So he says, God has given me these things, and yet he's given with it something to help humble me and keep me in the right attitude in order to serve the people rather than thinking that I'm something great. Because none of us are something great. Now, I have a heart rhythm problem sometimes. Beats real funny, out of rhythm. And uh, I've learned to control it through taking a deep breath and holding it as long as I can and a, a couple of things like that. Uh, but you know, that happens, oh, I don't know, every two, three, four weeks, and sometimes a couple of times even within a day or two. And I realize I could die right now, very easily. Heart arrhythmia can kill you. And if I went to the hospital, they would put a pacemaker in post-haste to regulate my heartbeat. But I'm not going there. I've been anointed. Uh, if God wants me to live and finish this, I'll live. And he'll take care of me until the time of restitution, like he will some of you old people. Uh, so I'm not worried about it. And yet, on the other hand, when it happens, I realize this could be it for me. This could be the one. So it helps keep me in a right attitude so that I don't think, you know, I'm this big whatever it is. But no, I could die any moment uh, from that. I think my dad probably died of it. Had a heart attack. He'd had it for 55 years. And finally had a heart attack and just fell over. So I guess some dissidents need to know about that so they can pray it happens. Uh, <laughs> no, some of them don't have that bad an attitude. Some do, though. And uh, that's okay. I trust God to take care of me and to keep me in this job as long as he sees fit. But if he doesn't want me in it, he can remove me in a heartbeat. And when it starts beating irregular like that, I realize I'm only one heartbeat or a lack of one from being dead. But it's okay. Uh, God will keep me alive so long as He needs me. And if if I do, if I had done all the things they say I've done, He might have already taken me out. <laughs> but I'm not perfect either, and I make mistakes and have wrong attitudes and wrong thoughts and. I fight myself every day, just like Paul said he fought himself every day, and hopefully we all are fighting ourselves every day to bring all our thoughts into the captivity of Christ, not according to our human passions and uh, desires and temptations and all of those things that the human beings go through. Selfishness, self-pity, I mean, you can name a list that long of the works of the, fl of the flesh, of things that we do. But we fight it, day by day, moment by moment. So he said, yes, I've had these revelations, but also I have things here that God uses to keep me humble and not exalt myself. Verse 8, for this thing uh, I besought the Eternal three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, <coughs> my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul had gone formally, at least, to God at least three times 
over this affliction he had, apparently with his eyes. And God said, no, I'm going to leave it on you. This is going to keep you and the people humble. And uh, my grace, my goodwill toward you in other ways is sufficient for you. You don't have to have this healing. And we suffer things that sometimes we're anointed for and aren't fixed, at least not yet. And what do those do? Well, I'll tell you what. When my heart goes funny and starts beating out of rhythm, what do I do? I pray. More. More fervently than I might have ten minutes before. It causes me to seek God in a way that I might not if I didn't have it. So, (coughs) I guess I need to say... I'm thankful for my heart problem. Now, that's hard to say about a problem or a difficulty you have. But if we have it in the right spiritual context, the afflictions and the troubles that we have are there to remind us that we need God. We need God. So he had sought God, and God said, Nope, I'm leaving this one on you, Paul. I'll deliver you from beatings. I'll save you from a shipwreck and a snake bite. And I'll do all these things. I'll even get you out of prison or let you escape from death at Damascus. I'll take care of all these things for you because I still have use for you. But I'm going to leave this on you to keep you humble and in a right attitude. So we need to look at it that way. So, he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. When we are weak, then we are strong. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, when he had infirmities, it humbled him. And when we're humble, then the power of God can be with us. But when we're vain and selfish and full of ego and full of ourselves, and uh, raise our esteem of ourselves, then that inhibits Christ from working in us. So, he says, I'm thankful for the infirmities I have, because it makes me malleable, and makes it so that Christ can work through me, and have the power of Christ. So, he says, you may put me down for this, but... God left it on me for a purpose. So look down on on me if you want, but uh, I glory in it. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, what does all this rebellion around you and me do to us here? We have people who despise, who make accusations, who dream up all kinds of things. And what does it make me do? It makes me go pray to God for His mercy, for His forgiveness, for His help, and that He will take care of our enemies, as David often prayed. So, it makes you turn to God instead of to self when all those around you put you down. And that's not a bad indication that God is working with you is when people who are in a raunchy attitude put you down. Uh, Herbert Armstrong had a lot of that. But I feel to this day he was a man of God doing a work that God wanted him to do. And where did you and I learn what we learned? From him. Not from those who wrote nasty books about him. Not from those that put him down and accused him of all kinds of things. We learned it from him and the work that he established or God established through him. So why put down the one that God gave us what we have? Be thankful that God raised the man up and taught him the Sabbath and the holy days and things that we believe in. We should be so thankful for Herbert Armstrong. That's how I heard it. 
trying to hear XELO and XEG from Mexico when we were in West Texas and barely able to pick it up and trolling the knobs trying to keep the static down to listen to Herbert W. Armstrong preach the gospel of the kingdom. That's where I learned it, from age 8, 9, somewhere in there. And I give credit to God for working through that man to take my family and teach us the truth, just like he did you, somehow, some way. And now, we've had more information given to us, which we need here at the end, that he didn't need to know. And he's shown it, where to be and what to do, through no one but me. Now, you can despise that, and you can despise me if you want to. But when you do, I will pray to God that he count me and us worthy to finish the job that he has shown us needs to be done. And those who criticize don't particularly bother me. When they do this kind of thing, who does it put in a bad attitude? Them. I could care less. I basically ignore them. I just go on about my business as if they don't exist. I only go to court when I have to. I pay lawyers' fees when I have to. That irritates me. But as far as they're concerned, I live my life as if they are not even there. So they don't hurt me. I go to God and ask for His forgiveness and mercy and love for the things I know are wrong with me, not the things they think are wrong with me. So it's between God and me and not between me and them. I could care less and he's already told me in Scripture what he's going to do about them when the time comes. So I'm not worried about it. I trust him and I trust his word that he's going to do exactly what he said he will do. So why worry about it? Just be thankful that God is putting us through trials and troubles and tribulations to humble us and bring us nearer to him. That's all that counts. So he says, when I am weak, then am I strong, because I turn to God. 11, uh, verse 11, I am become a fool in glorying. You have compelled me. He says, I shouldn't have to say these things. I didn't really want to say them. And here, I very rarely do either. Just preach the word of God. But some of these people, by what they're doing, kind of compel me to say, Hey, wait a minute. Where did God give us this information? So he says, You people have forced me to tell about visions and revelations uh, in hopes that maybe you can see the truth instead of going the direction you're going with splits and divisions. You know, these people out here don't think they can get along with me, but I've noticed they don't get along with each other either. They have several different groups. They, they combine only against a common enemy, me, but they don't get along with each other. And most of them don't even meet together. They have their own, own little thing they do, wherever it might be. Because they don't have unity and love and peace among themselves. Just like the people in Corinth didn't. There were lots of different so-called leaders who had set themselves up and had their own little groups. Exact same thing we have here. So, I've, I've had to be so foolish as to tell you the things that God has done for me in giving me information, but you've compelled me to do it. For I ought to have been commended of you. You should have been telling me thank you for what you've brought us, not me having to tell you to be thankful for what I brought you. The shoe was on the wrong foot here. For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. So he said, I am an apostle, and I'm not one whit behind James, Peter, and John. But as a human being, I am nothing. That's all we are. Any of us is nothing. We are transitory. We're human. We're physical. We're to a great degree carnal and selfish. And we're nothing. And yet God has given us the knowledge of the bride of Christ and who the 144,000 really are and has made us candidates to be in the kingdom of God as the bride of Christ. 
And we understand that better than any of the Protestants who talk about going to heaven or even the Church of God who don't understand really who the 144,000 are, most of them. And they don't know what is required to get there or what the end time work even is. God has given it to you and me. And he's going to give it to another 10% very soon now. So he said, I'm nothing, but yet God has given me this information and trained me, and I taught it to you, and now you're despising me. They had, this was a serious, serious problem in the church. Truly the signs of an apostle were worked among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. There had been healings. There had been a resurrection of Eutychus. I don't know whether that had yet happened, but uh, Paul had done some spectacular things that God had caused. He was an apostle. For what is it wherein you were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you, Forgive me this wrong. He says, were you inferior to other churches? I wasn't burdensome to you. He'd explained back here, we've already gone through it, how he was not taking money from them. He was not taking anything from them. He wasn't being a burden to them in any way. And yet, they had decided to despise him anyway. In churches that he was taking tithes from, didn't despise him in the way the Corinthians did. So he says, what's wrong here? Forgive me this wrong of not being a burden to you. I guess I'll have to become a burden. And he's laying a burden on him here. So he says, behold, the third time I am ready to come to you. And I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours but you. I'm not coming after your money. I'm not coming after your houses. I'm coming for you to help teach you about the kingdom of God so you can become immortal spirit beings. That's why I'm coming. I'm not coming to get what you got. I haven't in the past, and I'm not going to again. And I'm not coming to get what you got. I want you. You know, we tried that same approach here. A whole acre with all the water you can use for $100 a month for 49 years. Was I here to try to take people's wealth? You cannot live anywhere except under a bridge for that. A whole acre of land for 100 bucks and free water? Give me a break. We tried not to be burdensome at all. We tried to remove some of the burden that worldwide through their grasping for offerings and and so on to do this and to do that had laid on you. I tried to reverse that. Well, very little good that did. I get accused of stealing millions from a hundred a month. <laughs> and two thousand of that went to a mortgage payment. Same deal we got here that Paul was dealing with. Utter an outright rebellion. So he says, this is the third time I'm about to come to you. Not after anything, I just want you to obey God. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. You know, we can put widows' houses on for free. We can do the road maintenance. We can fix the water uh, for costs more sometimes than is taken in for maintenance and so on. We can do our best to try to take care of people, and yet they despise us for it. So the more abundantly I try to love you, the less I be loved. He says, look people, I'm trying here. Why don't you recognize what you're being given? You know, there were times in the last years that I was in a perfect position to actually evict people from this property because they'd broken their lease and I didn't do it? Why? I wasn't after their houses. I was after them. 
didn't want their houses, didn't want to take their houses away from them, could have legally done so, and didn't, and now we're partially suffering as a result of that. Instead of getting the bad apples out of the barrel, we've tried to show compassion and mercy and love and forgiveness, and it's bit us. But that's okay. That's okay, because in the long run, I need mercy and God's love and God's forgiveness. And he has said if we don't forgive and love, then he will not forgive us. So I bet if I erred at all, it was in mercy and compassion and some would say weakness. Letting people stay who should really have gone. But now looking back and looking at the scriptures, I know God's going to cast them out when the time comes, and he's ready, and they're going to go bye-bye. So I'm not worried about it. <clears throat> but if I erred in the, any direction, it was being in too, too patient and too merciful and too kind and not running their butts off when I really should have. Okay? So we have been spending ourselves here for each other, doing whatever needed to be done to make life as easy and as cheap as possible. And for that we are despised. Verse 16, But be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. He says, I could see through what's going on. And I worked at helping teach you and show you what you needed to do without being too open and blatant about it. But he says, now the gloves are off. Now we're going after it. Did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent to you? <clears throat> he had sent Titus and Timothy and other ministers who were duly ordained. And he says, did they take from you? I didn't. Did they? Did Titus make a gain of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? Didn't Titus and Timothy... Do the same things I did when I was there, Paul says. They didn't take advantage of you either. But you think we did. Just like some of these people dream up that I've taken two or three million dollars out of here. There's no way in this world, if you had fifth grade math, that you could sit down and figure out how millions of dollars came through this little organization. It's just utterly ridiculous and ludicrous. But people believe what people want to believe. Do you have any math skill at all? Figure up 25 houses, 2,500 a month, or, and, and uh, 2,000 of that a mortgage, and then figure out roads and water and electric bills and hall maintenance and all these things. Yes, there were some tithes and offerings. But out of the amount of people we've had, doesn't amount to that much, especially when half of them are on Social Security anyway. Do I need to go on and on and on with this? Or is it foolishness about people who have false claims and wild, wicked imaginations? I mean, I loan somebody a car, a truck, to haul furniture for her children. So my car, my truck is down at her house, and it was there late. And then at one time it was there overnight. So an evil imagination is that I was down there having an affair because my truck was there. That's how stupid some of this stuff gets. And wouldn't my wife have noticed if I'd been gone all night, probably, and not had any explanation of where I was? Yeah, I, I don't think she would have thought very highly of that. Well, you know, you can use that logic if you want. My my truck's been, same truck been parked over at Nelson's place when he was single. Sometimes it late at night and sometimes overnight and sometimes it's still there to this day because he uses it for two, three, four days at a time. So obviously I'm having an affair with Nelson, aren't I? If you're going to use that logic... Obviously I am. He's old and ugly, but whatever, you know. He's not even my type of guy. I, 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 
you know, if I were going to have an affair, I think I'd do it with a girl. I really do. Because I like them better than I do men. But if you want to use that logic, then that's obviously what's been going on. You know, there's, there's ignorance which can be cured with education. Ignorance has a cure, education. Stupidity only has one cure. You, you, you can't fix stupidity. Stupid is stupid. And it stays that way until death. Ignorance can be fixed. Even bad attitudes can be fixed. We had a deposition just recently. This guy's saying that that the document did not say what it said. So my lawyer says, well, what does the document say? Does it not say that the plaintiffs are to take care of part of the mortgage here uh, as according to a settlement agreement? Well, yes, he says it says that, but I don't interpret it that way. Now, Beautiful admission. My lawyer loved it. Yes, it says that. But I don't interpret it that way. So he's saying, yes, that's what it says, but I don't agree with it and I don't want to do it. So I want to file a lawsuit. I mean, the guy's got some college education, but he can't read with the comprehension of a sixth grader. No, I think he can. He doesn't want to. Because they want us to pay that which they agreed in a settlement agreement to receive in terms of a tenants in common agreement. Something they did not deserve from the very beginning and still don't. And which God is going to take away from them when the time comes. And even if they get a deed to the land, when God gets ready to run them off, he will run them off. Ananias and Sapphira tried to save back a portion of what... They had sold when the apostles had asked them to give all. And they were struck dead. And God says these are going into the tribulation and they're all going to die there. So, I'm not worried. I know what God is going to do. He's already said so and I trust His Word and I trust Him. So if they don't want to interpret it that way and they want to file suit, it's their business. But I already know what's going to happen. And I hope you do too, because that's what the Scripture says, and I've read it to you. So, we haven't tried to take advantage of you, Paul says, yet you despise us anyway and set up leaders among yourselves. Verse 19, again, think you that we excuse ourselves to you? We don't have to give excuses. We speak before God in Christ. What I'm telling you today is the truth. People don't want to believe that. That's okay. We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. The only reason we're coming there is to help you toward the kingdom of God. Not to take advantage of you. <coughs> You know, that's the only reason I'm here. If it weren't for doing the work of God in teaching the truth that He has shown, I would be in Wyoming or Montana or Alaska and somewhere besides here. Because I don't need this. Except perhaps to keep me humble and contrite and to turn to God. I'm here for a purpose, and I intend to fulfill that purpose unless and until God remove me from it. And that's His call. Not a threat, not a challenge. It's just His call. And I accept that because I'm a slave of Christ. And if He wants to beat me to death, He can do it. If He wants my heart to quit, He can do it. He has that power, and I have no power over myself except to try to take care of myself the best I can. I do that, that responsibility. We all need to take care of our health and what God has given us, not bitch about 
what's wrong with us, but be thankful for what we do have in seeking God. That's what it's all about. So he says, we're here to edify you. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would. You're not going to be like I wanted you to be. And that I shall be found to you such as you would not. He says, you're not going to like what you see when I come there unless you have repented. He says, you're not going to like it, and I'm going to find you probably... Uh, debating and envying and wrath and strife and backbiting and whisperings and swellings and tumults. That's what they were already having. And he said, if you don't listen to what I'm saying, I'm going to come and that's what I'm going to find and I'm going to deal with it. So he says, unless when I come again, my God will humble me among you and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already. And have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lawlessness which they have committed. So it wasn't only that guy doing incest there in 1 Corinthians that Paul is talking about. There are others who were also sinning in the same manner. And he said, I'll have to deal with it. So then in chapter 13, he says, This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Now, normally speaking, uh, you had to have two or three individuals as witnesses. But he is applying that in a different way here, where he says, This is the third time I've witnessed against you, and you haven't done anything about it. Now, he had also sent other witnesses, Timothy and Titus and so on, who would have echoed what Paul is saying here, because they had come under the same abuse he had. But he's saying, how many times do I got to come? This is the third time I'm coming to you about these things. And I'm establishing every word. I told you before, and foretell you, again, as if I were present, the second time. And being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned, and to all other that if I come again, I will not spare. He says, you either repent and straighten up, or else. And he was ready to disfellowship, and to turn over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Any who had raised themselves up as teachers, and thought they were something. I won't spare. Now we, Nelson and I, have shown an awful lot of mercy around here with people who did not deserve mercy. And there will come a time when we will spare not. There will come a time when there are some behinds that are going to leave here, and they're going to leave here in a hurry, and God is going to have Satan after them when they do leave. I guarantee you that. The forgiveness and the mercy and the patience will all be gone because God has said this is the way that it is going to happen and they must be cast out. He has allowed it and he will allow it up to a certain point and then he's going to say sayonara. Just like with this nation. He has put up with it for over 430 years now and he said very soon now the mercy, the patience, the waiting will be over and I am going to shake you from head to tail. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you. says, oh, you think you have to have a proof of Christ through someone who looks mighty and speaks in a mighty way. No, that's not what's coming. For though he, Christ, was crucified through weakness, he was a human being, and he said himself, I could have called a legion of angels and struck all these people dead. But his purpose was to appear weak. His purpose was not to defend himself and to allow himself to die. So he came and was crucified in physical weakness, not defending himself. And when Peter took a swipe at the high priest's servant with a sword, he was... Uh, 
reprimanded for it, and Christ stuck the guy's ear back on. He intended to cut his head off, but he just missed and hit the ear. If he had hit the head, Christ would have stuck the guy's head back on. You know? He was crucified through weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. He was resurrected and is at the right hand of God. So, humanly, we may be weak, yes. But we have the opportunity to be powerful through Christ. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. God will reward us for helping you to see the truth. He says, come on, be thankful here. Instead of being in raunchy, rebellious, uh, self-serving attitudes. And then he says, verse 5, Examine yourselves whether you actually be in the faith. You know, he says, by what I see going on there, with incest and uncleanness and lawlessness and lying and cheating and stealing, which is what we see around here, He says, you need to examine whether you're actually in the truth or not. I had one of them tell me one day, I've never seen any of the fruits of the Spirit in you. I've been pretty patient with that guy. Is that a fruit of the Spirit or not? He's stolen from us. Has a cooler refrigerator unit down on his place right now. He won't give back. He didn't pay for it. He helped Nelson and I move it there, but he didn't buy it but he won't give it back. He's stealing it, among other things. But he's never seen the fruits of God's Spirit in me. I think I've been pretty patient, pretty forgiving, uh, and so on. So he says some people better examine themselves whether they are actually in the faith or not, based on their fruits. Prove your own selves. You know, maybe they ought to quit lying and stealing and cheating and making false accusations. That's not godly. That's satanic. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So all those people who are accusing you and me and Nelson are satanic. They can't be anything else because that's what Satan does, not what God does. God forgives. People accuse. Satan accuses. And they think they're in the church. They better examine themselves whether they're in the faith or not. Prove your own selves. Repent of this. Know you not your own selves, how that Emmanuel is in you, except you be reprobates? If he's not in you, and you're not doing things according to the way he does them, then you're reprobate. You're not a member of the church. Lying, cheating, stealing, land, or anything else is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's the works of the flesh and of Satan. And that makes you a reprobate from Christ even though you might in your mind think you are of Christ. Did not the Pharisees think they were of God? Oh, yeah. We're born of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God is our Father, and we're He's happy, happy with us, because we are the true Christians. And yet Christ said, you're white and sepulchers and sons of snakes. Oh, them's fighting words. If any of them hear this, These are fighting words. You think they're going to repent? No, they're just going to get even angrier and put me down more for saying what I'm saying. You know what? I could care less. All I want to see them do is quit lying and cheating and defrauding and accusing and be humble, meek followers of Christ. That's all I care about. Now I pray to God that you do no evil Not that we should appear approved. We're not here just to get your approval. But that you should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates to you. Paul says you think that the true ministry is reprobate, and you're okay. You got everything backward. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. So we're just here for the truth. That's what I'm here for. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we wish, even your perfection. So the, I wish you weren't liars and thieves and adulterers and all these things that you're doing. That's what we want you to be, is repentant and obedient. But you're not. <clears throat> so, 
God may put troubles on Paul, he said, and it's okay if I'm physically weak, but you think you're the strong ones. And all we wish is that you would be mature and perfect. Therefore I write these things, being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness, according to the power which the Eternal has given me to edification and not to destruction. So here he's reasoning with them. He's trying to use some logic to show them where they're wrong and how the, the true ministry was right. But he says, I fear you're not listening, but if I were there in person, I would work you over good. Uh, and God had given him the power for edification, not destruction. He wasn't there to destroy them and to take from them but to give them the truth so that they might become children of God. So then he sums it up. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be mature or perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind, which they weren't. Live in peace, which they weren't. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. He says, if you'll repent and live in love and peace, and not division, God will be with you. Otherwise, He won't. And when I come, I won't be with you either. I'll kick your butts out, He says, if you don't repent. Just like He had the man with incest in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I'm going to do it to the rest of you if you don't straighten up. So He says, what I want you to do is live in peace and love and kindness, comfort and peace. Can you do that? If you do, God will be with you. If you don't, He won't. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints salute you. The grace of the eternal Jesus Christ or Emmanuel and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So, he says, I hope the Father and the Son and their spirit will be with you and that you will listen and heed what I've said. And that's what I really want out of you. And if you don't get the message from this letter, I'm going to come and I'm going to be pretty powerful among you and I'm going to straighten this thing out if there's not but a few of you left. So, that was quite a message to the Corinthians through both the first and the second book. And I hope we've learned something from it. So we'll end this series, obviously, today.